0: And for us, Babylon in the literal sense, Babylon in the figurative sense, is where we have been living. And it's great. We love it there. And we thank you for your prayers and supporting us through those days, through these years that we've been able to be there, since 2009. But in joining in the sermon series of Daniel, and recognizing how to live there, When we get to Daniel 9, that we're going to be talking about today, there is a little bit of a surprising shift, and that something happens in Daniel where first as the prophet and then the message that he's going to be sharing with his people is that there is a turn towards hope. And so the sermon that we're going to be dealing today is the two halves of hope, The passage is really the second half, but we're going to look at some passages also that deal with the first half, and we're going to try to figure out what is this hope like? What is it like in Babylon? And I want to warn you, in a sense, that it's not necessarily what we expect. Our previous president made hope the center rhetorical piece of his presidency, It fits, really. As Americans, we are a hopeful, optimistic people. As Christians, we know how the end turns out. We have reason to believe that hope is there, that God works all things together for good. But as we read Daniel, especially this prayer that we're going to look at today, hope gets turned on its head. It becomes something that we don't really expect. And in this, the warning, I have to apologize in advance, is that it's going to really make this an utterly depressing sermon. (laughs) And so I appreciate your chuckles. I do somehow mean this seriously. But I am uniquely qualified to give you a depressing sermon. (laughs) See, I live in the Middle East. And there is very little to report of good from what's going on over there. Do you guys remember this picture? Things like it seven years ago, the Arab Spring. I forgive you if you've forgotten. I certainly forgive you if you've chosen to forget. But we lived through it. And I was able to be in the middle of those crowds and get excited and get hopeful that finally something was happening in the Middle East that promised good. Now, it wasn't all good from the very beginning, of course. There were clashes, there were riots, there were people were getting injured, some were dying, and it, unfortunately for us, was a time in which we felt we needed to evacuate from Egypt. That turned out to be a great blessing. We came here. And I don't remember exactly what we said, although I know the tenor of the message that I was bringing as we spoke in churches at that time. It was that, I know you guys are worried we're not sure what this is going to be. But I want to tell you, I've seen it. I've heard these messages. I've looked in the eyes of these people. The Arab Spring is good. All right? I don't, do you remember me saying such a thing? I'm very sorry. <laughs> Please forgive me for being a false prophet. Because it wasn't very long after wonderful scenes like this that we had Syria. And that was followed up by Yemen. What do we have after Yemen? I have hardly any sequence to worry about here, but ISIS. Copts were being beheaded in Libya. And this, of course, is a problem that still is with us today: refugees. And this is what the Arab Spring produced. Maybe there's some nice things to say about it. In Egypt, we can say that the current government is one that is especially welcoming and encouraging of the Coptic Christian population. They're encouraged by that, even in the midst of all the troubles and the wrong things they know what goes on in their government. We can say that there have been many people from non-Christian backgrounds who have, in this upheaval, looked afresh at God and religion and given their lives to Christ and experienced salvation. This is true, it's real, but when you look at the Arab Spring as a whole, the people killed, the societies destroyed, homes displaced, thousands of people. Anyway, for the past seven years, we, to a large degree, have watched hope die. So what do you do with that? The Middle East has never had such hope as they had seven years ago. And now the people are just trying to get back to normal. Hope now is like, oh, I hope we can just live steady. And of course, that's a similar story we could tell in many of your own lives, whether it's family troubles or children astray or job opportunities, there's always points in life in which the hope that we thought we had disappears. So what went wrong? What went wrong in the Middle East? What is going on wrong in America or in your particular lives? Hope, is it something real? Does it sustain us? Is it false? Well, no, it's not false. If we turn, not turn, but just remember the passage in Hebrews. We think of this normally in terms of faith, but Look at it in terms of hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. So if we just take that concept of hope, and again, just mess with it a little bit, what is a good definition of hope? It's basically that which you don't have. You might get it. Faith is believing that you will. But hope is that which you don't have. And sort of the feelings that you manufacture in order to deal with that. So if we try to, like I said, talk about the two halves of hope, what are they? The first one, the realization of loss. Understanding that there is something I don't have. Maybe I once had it and it's gone. Maybe I've never had it. But I'm understanding that life is not quite complete right now. I'm not content But hope does move forward. It is able to anticipate that which is better. Right? If not, if not for that second half of hope, it would just be depression. But hope is able to say, yeah, things aren't right, but we're going to move along. If we put a a Christian eye on that, we would say that God will move us along. Well, That starts to happen in Daniel chapter 9. And so, let's read. The first two verses. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, That the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, that for the people of Israel is a wonderful discovery. It was there all along. You know the context. The people have been in exile now for over a generation. There's a memory of the Israel that used to exist. Before it was smashed by the Babylonians, the temple was destroyed, life was uprooted. It looks like the Middle East of today. But now they're in Babylon, and they've been there for a while, and following the advice of the prophets, they've settled down, they've prayed for their land, for the rulers that are there, and they've gotten on okay. Some of their people, like Daniel, are in high positions in government, but yet it's not home. And there's always that sense in which the people of Israel understood that Jerusalem was their home. They're not there. That's depressing. They've lost it. But here, Daniel, good Bible scholar that he was, goes back and understands it's almost time. So here we are. This is the second half of hope, right? The realization, the anticipation of better. It's coming. It's in the scriptures. God has promised it. 70 years. He can count. Oh, when was that? 586? We got carried into exile, plus this, plus that. But now we're skipping over a, a whole half of the sermon. So we need a flashback. We need to go back to that moment when Jerusalem was being destroyed. When hope was nothing more than the realization of loss. And for that, we also need to turn to one of the other most depressing sermon givers, a man named Jeremiah. I don't know what this says about me, but when you're in high school and they ask you to identify your favorite biblical characters, this is the guy I picked for some reason. (laughs) I was probably a very unpleasant person to be around. But there is a like a dogmatic sense in which Jeremiah represents something excellent about faith. He had a message to give and he gave it. It just wasn't a very nice one. All the people of Israel at that time, the prophets, the false prophets, were saying, God's going to get us out of this. The Babylonians, yeah, they're tough, but we're his people. He's gonna protect us. Jeremiah's saying, No. Uh uh. Oh, you guys are getting carried into exile. The city's gonna be destroyed. And he got thrown into a pit for saying so. He got carried off to Egypt. It was terrible. But yet, in the faithfulness of his giving a message, he gave us two little gems that Daniel finally discovers. One is that, you know, there's the prophecy. In the midst of all this destruction, Jeremiah is saying it's going to last 70 years. Not yet on the slide. But the the other segment... That he tells us is this little anecdote that's tucked away. It's a very precious passage. That a member of Jeremiah's family died. And so the property needed to be redeemed. And so it fell to him to do it, but why? I mean, when the invaders coming in, why spend your precious resources on land that's just going to go to some foreigner? But God said, no, do it. This itself is a physical prophecy. You are coming back here. This land is going to come back to you. This exile is not permanent. So in the middle of these messages of destruction, God was having Jeremiah plant these seeds of hope. Seventy years, this land is still going to be yours. And so no matter how bad things were becoming at that time, Jeremiah produced this lament that has been with us now as one of the most precious understandings of who God is for us. It gives us hope like we've never seen. So let's read the Jeremiah passage. You guys know this. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, The Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Isn't this great? I mean, it's hope. In the middle of the trouble, God is faithful, but yet we have to wait. That's what hope is, right? It sustains us. But is it good enough? as the Middle East is being torn to shreds, as your personal difficulties challenge the faith that you have, is this enough? Let us say it is absolutely foundational. Without it, I don't think we could continue. But... While we can celebrate a slight turn in government for the copts of Egypt and we can absolutely celebrate the welcome of thousands of people into heaven as the result of the upheavals of the Middle East, what do we do at the same time when we see tens of thousands who no longer are at home, who have had somebody die? I don't know. If I wonder, is this good enough? Oh, it is, but it's not where we stop. And it's not where we stop because it's not where Jeremiah stopped. And these are verses that we don't sing about in our hymns. And we don't put on our placards and put them on our walls. And I think when we realize what hope really needs to be, we should pay more attention to what Jeremiah follows up with. So let's read that. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust, there may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. These verses come only a few short sentences after Great is Thy Faithfulness. There's hope in here, right? There may yet be hope, I guess, sort of, perhaps. It's a lot different than that first part. This I call to mind and therefore I have hopes is 21. By the time he gets to verse, where is it? 29, there may yet be hope. You're struggling on to it, that's what... Hebrews is talking about, that's faith. But yet what do we do when things collapse around us? Bear the yoke, sit in silence, bury your face in the dust, offer your cheek to one who would strike you, and let yourself be filled with disgrace. This is the flashback. This is the first half of hope. The realization of loss. And does it remind you of anyone? Right? He bore the yoke. He buried his face in the dust. He offered his cheek. And as his world fell apart very dramatically, disciples betraying him, disciples denying him, running away, knowing full well that the temple is going to be destroyed in a few short years after he leaves he lived out what jeremiah taught in lamentations so what do we do right this is the realization of loss and this is what we do we bear the cross we bury our face in the dust in prayer And we accept the disgrace that falls on us. That's what loss is. And of course, each one of these pictures comes with other promises that we know full well. But this is where we have to land for that first half of hope to be completed. But if we do it, it's preparation, right? There's a second half coming, the anticipation of better. We know after the cross, there was resurrection. But I promised you a utterly depressing sermon, not just half of a depressing sermon. And this is where the surprise comes in Daniel, because he received the prophecy Right? 70 years. Let's go back to the main passage and see what Je- Daniel does with this. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. We've done our flashback. Now we're here at the second half. This is the anticipation of better. 70 years, right? You would think they would throw a party. This is God's promise. Finally, we're going to go home. What does he do instead? Sackcloth and ashes. Hope needs to be turned on its head. What went wrong in the Middle East? What is wrong with the hope that has been parts of our lives and our nation and we don't know what's happening but we think it's going to turn a corner and then it doesn't? I think there's a sense of optimism that we need to test a little bit. Okay, we can deal with that first half. Maybe, yes, we do need to remember we need to get our faces in the dust when things are wrong. We need to embrace that disgrace rather than just justifying ourselves and trying to blame others for our problems. But this part, this is harder. Things do turn. And what does Daniel do with it? Sackcloth and ashes. So, we still have a big long passage to read. And it's a good thing we do because we understand why. Daniel is going to give us a template for what to do now with this dawning of new hope. And so just as those actions of the first half prepare us for the anticipation of better, Daniel now is going to pray us through an application that gives us the groundwork for hope. I mean, we could just conjure it if we want to. We could imagine things are going to get better. Things are looking like they're going to get better. But that doesn't mean we won't have work to do first. And Daniel, in this prayer, does the work. So let's see what he does. Let's read in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed... O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame, the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes, and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and is turned away, refusing to obey you. Why bother, really, with all this? It's God's promise. Seventy years, it's going to happen. The exile is ending. Not yet. There's still things to go through to get there. Other books of the Bible deal with that. But God's promises are faithful. He's going to do it. He said he would. But yet, what does Daniel do anyway? Confesses his sins. And this is the first application. If we are going to deal with hope properly, once it starts to dawn, the first thing we have to do is remember our sins lest it be a false hope. Fortunately, the confession of sins is not the end of the story. We know that in the scope of God's complete story, but we also know it from this passage because Daniel walks us into the next stage in the verses that follow. So let's keep reading. Therefore, Because of all these sins, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring this disaster upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. We confess our sins but God promised to the people of Israel what was going to happen. Right? You remember Deuteronomy. There's the choice between life and death as, God, as Moses brought them up to the mountains to compare what their future would be like. Joshua told them, choose this day whom you will serve. So the people knew full well, you obey, there will be blessings. If you don't, this is what happened. Daniel is praying the justice of God. This is the second thing we have to do. Understand that we deserve it. And we have to be careful here. Because not necessarily everything that you're suffering in life is your fault. It might be. It would do well that we search ourselves to confess our sins... But it might be the sins of our family or the sins of our nation or just the fallen nature of this world. But whatever it is, we know that we have sinned and therefore we stand in light of God's eternal judgment. We deserve everything we're getting. And if we are going to properly walk through hope and the anticipation of better We need to confess our sins. We need to understand that God in this is just. But just like the story doesn't end with sin, it doesn't end with God's judgment either. And neither does the prayer. Thank goodness. Let's keep reading. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, And who made yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned and we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to those around us. The key part of this passage here at the very beginning you brought your people out of Egypt if we remember our sins and we remember our, God's justice the next stage is to simply remember God's redemption right hope can now start to turn a little bit Jeremiah can say to them excuse me Daniel can pray that hey God brought us out of Egypt. We've been redeemed. We are his people. And as Christians, we know the truth of that in our lives too. That no matter my sins, no matter what I deserve, God has redeemed me. And so hope is not just an anticipation that things are kind of going to start getting better for me. It is the idea that I am God's. He has redeemed us. And this, in Daniel's prayer, is what he's also reminding the people about. Yeah, we deserved it. Seventy years is coming up. But why is it coming up? Why is this promise in our future? Because we belong to him. But strangely enough, even that is not the end of the story. Sure, there's sin. Yes, there's judgment. God's redemption is real. But it just doesn't end with eternal bliss. There's another step. If hope is truly going to be fulfilled, we have to also think of these next verses. Now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. This is now the conclusion of his prayer. And it's interesting what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, God, you promised 70 years, now do it. He doesn't say, finally, God, you're rescuing us. He says, your mercy and your name. So what's the application here? Okay. We've remembered Now it's time to petition. That's appropriate in prayer. But we petition God based on his mercy and on his glory. The mercy takes us back to the first stages, of course. We've sinned. Let's just own up to it. And if God is even going to fulfill the promises that he has made, that we receive, we plead with him as mercy. But yet we take a step beyond it. Is it so that we get to go home? Reclaim that land that I redeemed so back when? Jeremiah's dead, of course. His relatives can go back to it. But yeah, they get to farm again and plant their vineyards. Is that the point? No. Because of my name. Your great name, God. Where does our hope need to be pointed? Towards what we get? The anticipation of our better? No. God's glory. And so what has gone wrong all around the world? We have hoped. We've probably hoped completely wrong. Or without the foundation that Daniel and Jeremiah are walking us through. And so things do get better. At least we anticipate they will soon. And that's why we need Sackcloth and ashes. So, this also gives new meaning, I think, to Hebrews 11. The chapter of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for if you're hoping for that which you don't have but you might get it when you think of all these stages that we have to get through first that's a whole lot of work that's a whole lot of faith and it gives us a new perspective on how the heroes that we read about later on actually got where they would there is hope if we do it this way But I'm afraid at the same time that the anticipation of something better still comes with another blow to our understanding. I don't know if this gets worse or not. Please advance the slide. But Daniel does get an answer. He prays, And God comes to him. He sends the angel. And the angel is now going to deliver the message that he has to give to his people. And now this is still complicated. Where are we? In 22? Yes. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. So, things are turning. Seventy years, the exile is ending. Daniel did the work. He put on the sackcloth and ashes. And now here comes Gabriel with an answer. God, however, does not often give us such specific promises. The people of Israel at this time had the 70 years. I mean, it was printed, sealed, delivered. It's going to happen. We don't get that same type of promise. We have the promise of our salvation at the end. That is secure. But for most of our Christian life, we just have principles. Raise your child in the way he will go. If we live life the way that we're supposed to, the way God teaches us, he is faithful. It usually works out pretty well. And I would suppose most of you could raise testimonies of wonderful lives where God has blessed you as you have sought to do what he has wished. Which makes it so surprising when we realize they aren't promises. They're principles. They don't always work. Our sins, other people's sins, our nation's sins, ruins these things and I'm sure each of you have testimonies as well, at times in your life that you have suffered that. But we confess, we realize, plead out for his mercy, and yet there are times when Gabriel, so to speak, shows up with an answer. So let's read it. Consider the message. Understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people. This is the answer? What does that mean? 70 times 7, 4, 90, this, 6, 5, 48 plus. Like mathematics? That's our hope? God's clarity isn't always clear. Right? Now, fortunately, the leadership of this church has relieved me of the responsibility of trying to explain this to you. (laughs) So I just get to give the teaser that you guys should come back next week and understand what this means. But I can probably warn you and not annoy the leadership to say that we as Christians have struggled for generations to figure out what the 77s are all about, the point is that God is going to redeem his people in the end. That 70th seven is going to come and at the end of it, Christ returns and he brings us all to glory. He restores the world. He puts an end to sin and suffering. That is clear. But there's a whole lot of sevens before you get there. And we often cannot make sense of even the clarity that God does give us. This past year in Egypt has been a really tough one for us as we have tried to deal with visa issues in the government, spending month after month trying to get things settled, only at the very end to kind of get Egypt in what seemed yanked from under our feet. It was rough. And... There were evenings that I needed to put my face in the dust and just ask God, what's going on? What are we doing wrong? How do we do this better? Well, God has turned us. There is an anticipation of better. We feel like in 10 days we are now going to get on a plane, go back to Egypt, be welcomed. We anticipate that there is a visa solution for us that will come in the weeks that are there. There's good confidence in this, and it's not just hope, it's The way things seem to work, but it's what God has moved us from that great period of emotional suffering into a little bit of clarity. But we don't know how it's going to work. We don't know if it will work. If it does work, we don't know if it'll be good or not so good. Of course, it's God's good, but we don't know. God's clarity, which we are living in, isn't clear. So what do we do? There are four things to remember. Three of them from Jeremiah. When things are not right, this is where we bear the yoke and we understand that God has laid it on us. So we carry the cross that he has given and we humble ourselves in prayer and stick our face right in the dust as we realize that things are not turning out the way that we were expecting them to. If that even includes people filling us with disgrace, we turn our cheek. We understand that this is our response of love, but it doesn't really feel like it. Disgrace often doesn't feel like love. But yet we have to, for a time, embrace it. And we let ourselves get down to that pit and pour ourselves out to God so that when there is anticipation of better, that which God is going to bring to turn us around and to remove us from this period of suffering, sackcloth and ashes is what we have to do next. Remember our sins and confess them. Understand that God is just. That he has redeemed us and we are his. And yet the point of all this is for his glory. If there is hope that's going to come, it's not the hope that we want for ourselves. At least that's not where we have to land our hearts. It may or may not get better. But his name is what we need to be concerned about. And that'll be good for us too. But we need to situate ourselves properly. And so, if this is depressing, and the worship team can come back to the stage, we need to remember where we started as well. Because in the middle of Jeremiah's world falling apart, he gave us the passage that is foundational. So let's read it again. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. This is the foundation for our hope. We've looked through Daniel's prayer, what we need to do when things start looking better. If things aren't looking better yet, Jeremiah has given us the template for what to do. But on both of those halves, great is thy faithfulness. Egypt, America, as long as we are living in Babylon this is what our hope has to be. And let it be uniquely American with optimism, but let it be uniquely Christian with repentance and a focus on his glory and not our own. Let's pray.